Well, good morning, Abundant Life Church. How are you doing today? It's good to see you guys. I am so glad you're here. I am so glad you're here. Thanks for coming out today. Now, yours may be a boss that you just cannot please. Yours may be a coworker that just keeps hounding you and just keeps causing you problems. Yours could be an ex-spouse that just keeps giving you grief. Yours could be some person that you hardly even know, but for some reason or another, they've made it their life mission to make your life miserable. I'm talking about giants of opposition, people who just oppose you. For whatever reason, they, they have discovered their mission in life is to stand in your way and to make it difficult for you to live life, to achieve your goals, to have success. They just don't like you for some reason or another. Who knows what the reason is? Giants of opposition. We are in this series that we started several weeks ago now called Facing Giants, and we're looking at the life of David and the giants that he faced. And you know that the most popular giant David faced was Goliath, and from that story, we learned a lot of principles about giant warfare. And if you missed parts one and two of this series, I encourage you to go back and to check it out because there are principles there that will help you face any giant that you will come upon in your life. Last week, as we're getting further now into the series, we're looking at specific giants that David had to deal with, and which I believe you and I have to deal with as well. Last week, we looked at the giant of insignificance and how sometimes in life we feel like we're overlooked or we don't matter or what difference does my life make, or you're the one who feels like you're always chosen last, and dealing with the giant of insignificance. Today we're dealing with the giant of opposition. When a person or people, for whatever reason, they stand in your way, they oppose you. And so from this story today, we're gonna to learn some great lessons about how to deal with that. David had just won his, his great victory over Goliath. He cut him down to size. And now the people are lifting David up in, in praise. And we come to 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 and 7. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all of the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So, I mean, just stop for a moment. They came out to greet Saul, but Saul did not hear the message that he wanted to hear. You know, David, David has killed his, you know, tens of thousands. I mean, just thousands. Come on, what's up with this? And so all the while, David right now, he's winning some major points with the people, but he's losing some ground with Saul. While, while these people are throwing David a ticker tape parade, you know what Saul's doing? He's sharpening his spear. That's what he's doing. And so verses 8 and 9, Saul was very angry because this refrain, it galled him. They have credited David with his tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And then you go to verse 10. 
the next day while David was playing the harp, as he usually did, Saul had a spear. And you can just picture Saul rubbing his beard, just looking at David. His envy, his jealousy is growing. And he looks at him and he, and he has his spear and he hurled it at him saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. You can just hear the jealousy. You can feel the envy. And so begins this relentless opposition against David. And in this, this period of time, in the season of David's life, Saul would, would make an attempt on his life no less than six times. The first one involved a time when David um, was, was in a cave. And we're going to come to that in just a moment. It's a funny, funny part of, of the whole story. But Saul is bent on taking David out. And one of the ways he chose to do it, one of the first ways he chose to do it was, I'm going to give my daughter to him in marriage. Now, this seems like kind of a kind gesture that he's making to David. David, you know, you're, you're such a great person, and you're going to be king. I want my daughter you know, to be your wife. And, and so he says there's one condition. And the one condition is you have to go out and collect a hundred foreskins of the Philist- from the Philistines. Now, there's something about that that just sounds wrong. Okay? That, I mean, that is just wrong. So David said, yeah, no problem. And so David goes out, and not only does he collect a hundred, he, he doubles it. He doubles it. And he comes back and he says, hey, yes, 100. I thought I'd get 200. And so Saul realized that God was with David. And from that moment on, uh, he's afraid. And there's this adversarial relationship between Saul and David. And verse 29 in chapter 18 sums it up. Saul remained his enemy for the rest of his days. How would you like to have King Saul to be your enemy for the rest of your days? Now, you may not have people throwing spears at you, but I'll bet you got somebody in your life that's standing in opposition to you. Somebody with whom you're having to deal with a problem and they're opposing you. In fact, what I want you to do right now, because a lot of you, you, you already know who that person is or who those people are. I, just write their initials or, or maybe put a description, you know, like jerk, you don't know who it is, or scumbag or, or boss, hopefully not spouse. And, and just put those initials or, or maybe write that name down. And I want you to think about that person or those people as we go through this. Why do people oppose us? Why do people stand in our way? In those few verses I just read to you, there are four reasons that we can see, and there are other reasons, but in the few verses I just read, there are at least four reasons why people will stand in opposition to you while you face uh, the giant of opposition. One of those is envy. People are just envious of you. And when you look at Saul's life, it's obvious that, that he was very envious of, of David. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. You know, why does he have a church of 6,000 and, and, and ours is only like 3,000? What's up with that? God. 
And we can become very envious if we're not careful. Envy is one. Jealousy is another one, for sure. Jealousy is one. Uh, chapter 18, verse 9, from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Envy, jealousy, both of them, they will eat you alive. They'll eat you alive. What's the difference between envy and jealousy? You ever wonder? They're kind of like two sides of the same coin. Envy is when you want something that somebody else has. Jealousy is when you worry about somebody taking what you have. Make sense? Envy is wanting your neighbor's brand new Mercedes convertible. That's envy. Jealousy is when she takes your husband for a ride in it. See the difference between the two? Envy. Jealousy. Here's something else that we see from Saul. Why he opposed David. He was threatened by David's success. It's easy to be threatened by other people's success, isn't it? 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 15, when Saul saw how successful David was, he was afraid of him. He was afraid of David. Whenever you gain notoriety... Whenever you achieve a certain measure of success, there's always going to be somebody somewhere to come out of the woodwork and begin to criticize you, begin to cast a shadow over your success. This church is, is relatively large. There's some much, much larger and there's some much smaller. But I've, I've actually heard it said of, of uh, churches like this one that uh, they're referred to as garbage collectors. Or the pastors refer to as like a garbage collector. Isn't that crazy? I mean, the jealousy among people, well, the only reason our big church is because we've got a bunch of broken, messed up people that show up there that, you know, that we don't really want in our church. Honestly, i yeah, I got to be real honest with you. I would rather have a church full of messed up, broken people than a, than a church full of judgmental, finger-pointing people. Wouldn't you? So, so just, just turn, to, turn to the person sitting next to you right now and say, you are a messed up person, and I am so glad you are here. Give them a high five to, I am so glad you're here. We are messed up together. It, it could be insecurity. It could be a perceived loss of power. It could be somebody has appointed themselves as the, as the judge and jury of everybody else. But beneath all of it, beneath all of these reasons for people oftentimes standing in opposition of others, I think beneath all of them could be this one here, and that's a growing disconnection with God. It's a growing disconnection with God. And you might think, okay, where do you see this in the story? It's so clear in chapter 18, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with David, but he left Saul. There it is right there. Saul had this growing disconnection with God. I mean, as Saul is going on and on and on, he starts out being obedient, but, but there's a growing disconnection between Saul and, and God. And this is what I've discovered to be true, that whenever there's a, an increasing disconnection between you and God, there's going to be an increased dysfunction between you and people. That's what I see. Oftentimes, I see it in my own life. I'm, I'm not trying to point fingers at anyone. If, 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 I'm, if I find in my life I'm growing overly critical of people 
or if there's a sense of judgmental spirit that's rising up in me, or there's a sense of jealousy or envy or and even insecurity or fear or anxiety, any of those kinds of things that come between me and other people, the one thing I probably should stop and go and take a look at is, is how's my connection with God? Because whenever there's a growing disconnection between you and your heavenly father, your creator, I guarantee you there's going to be more and more dysfunction between you and the people around you. And it will express itself in insecurity. It'll express itself in fear. It'll express itself in anger and jealousy and envy and all these things threatened by other people and their success, all this stuff. It, it, just, it just rises up. It rises up. I, I actually heard of a pastor who had brought an associate pastor on staff. And, and I could see why this would be true. But he actually, on the first day of his job, he brought the guy into the auditorium, brought him up on the stage, and he pulled a piece of chalk out of his pocket, and he, and he got up on the stage and he made a big circle. Looks at the associate pastor and says, as long as you stay out of this circle, we'll be just fine. I mean, jealousy, envy, insecurity, fear, it's crazy. It's crazy stuff. Now, here's the question I want us to wrestle with a little bit today. David had already been anointed as king. He'd been appointed as king. He was, he was on the way to being the king, to being the, on the throne. Now, Saul is, is making attempts on his life. The question is, how will David deal with it? Because David is smart. David is sharp. And, and, and he's a military person. He's already proven that over and over. And he can take care of himself. The question is, how's he going to deal with it? Is he going to let God deal with it? Or is he going to take matters into his own hands? Because this is what's true. Whenever you and I are confronted by giants of opposition, whenever you and I have people who come into our life and they oppose us for whatever reason it happens to be, you and I have a choice to make. We can either take the low road or we can take the high road. You can take one or the other, and it's your choice. You can take the low road, and you can say, you know what? Do whatever you want to do. You're going to pay. I'm going to make sure you pay. I'll get even with you. And you can take the low road, or you can take the high road, and you can turn it over to God. I love what Max Lucado says. He says, major in your evil emperor, if you choose. Paint horns on his picture. Throw darts at her portrait. Make and memorize a list of everything the jerk took from you, your childhood, your career, your marriage, your health. Linger too long in the stench of your hurt, and you'll end up smelling like the toxin you despise. And so when facing the giants of opposition in our life, when facing that person that's opposing you right now, what are you going to do? You're going to take the low road? and take matters into your own hands? Or are you going to take the high road and let God come to your rescue? So what does it mean? What does it look like to choose the high road? Choosing the high road means several things. It means giving peace a chance. You'll see all of these in, in this story with David right here. It means to, to give peace a chance. David shows us that, that it was more important to him to give peace a chance than to get even with Saul. And it's so very clear in this story. And the first opportunity is the one I mentioned a moment ago when 
when they were in this cave. David, in running from Saul, he was in this cave at a place called En Gedi. And he'd gone into the cave, and he's hiding from Saul. And, and I've been in caves. In fact, I've been to this cave. And you can go in these caves, and they can be really, really dark. And you can be hiding back in the, in the shadows. And that's where David is. And lo and behold, who wanders in? Of all people, what a coincidence, you know? Of all people to come wandering into the cave, here comes Saul. So, you know, David's in there hiding. Saul came to relieve himself. He, he went out to use the bathroom. And so David, again, he's sharp, he's sneaky, he, he knows what's up. And, 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 and so he, he comes up behind Saul, just sneaks up. I mean, he's so good. I mean, he had to be really good to do this. And he sneaks up behind Saul. And, and he, could have, he could have, you know, put his arm around him and just slit his throat. And that would have been it. That would have been it. What did he do? He, all he did was cut a piece of his robe off. That was it. And then, you know, Saul obviously, you know, would have discovered that. Somebody would have seen it. And he would have known. He would have known. Oh, my gosh. David was in that cave. And he let me go. And, and his men, David's men, said, David. This is your chance. And, and notice what David said. He said in chapter 24, verse 6, he says, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. This is Saul, and he's trying to take his life. And notice David's response to somebody in authority over him. I mean, is that not a good lesson for today? Or, or, or should I lift up my hand against him? For he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men, and he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave, and, and Saul left the cave, and he went away. Now, here's the question. Was this an opportunity lost, or was this an opportunity seized? It just depends on which road you're on. If you're traveling the low road, then it was obviously an opportunity lost because he lost his opportunity to kill Saul and to end this madness of Saul trying to take his life. But if you're traveling the high road, then it was an opportunity seized. And where he had the opportunity and the motive and the reason to take Saul's life, he didn't. Instead, he let him go. And it was an opportunity seized because he was living on a higher road. And he realized, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to put these in God's hands. And that's what God wants us to do. When you go to the New Testament in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, there Paul encourages us. He says, if it is possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, even people who oppose you. I mean, it's easy to live at peace with people who like you. And it's easy to live at peace with people who support you and who get along with you. That's easy. It's not so easy to live at peace with people who stand in opposition to you, is it? As much as it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. David never did make peace with Saul. But nobody can blame him for not trying. At least he gave peace a chance. Here's the second thing. Choosing the high road means refusing to retaliate. 
It means I'm going to refuse to retaliate. I, I'm not going to get even. When, when the critical comment comes your way, when the hurtful, ugly email is in your inbox, when your character is assassinated, when somebody lies about you, you make the decision, even though everything in you wants to get back, wants to get even, wants to prove them wrong, wants to get you a pound of flesh, everything in you wants to do that, you make the decision, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to retaliate. And again, the New Testament encourages us in this way. Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Don't let evil get the best of you. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil. How? By doing good. By doing good. How many of you wish this verse was not in the Bible? <laughs> Just take it out. I mean, come on. Do good to people that oppose me, do good to people who don't like me, who are lying about me, who are assassinating my character, who are judging my motives, be good to those people? Yeah. That's what it says. I mean, there's something in us that has to believe, at least it crossed David's mind. This is my chance. But you never get that sense from David. You'll never get that when you hear his heart in 1 Samuel 24, verse 12. May the Lord decide between you and me, Saul. May the Lord take revenge on you for what you did to me. However, I will not lay a hand on you. Wow. That takes a big person. On yet another occasion, when David had the opportunity to take Saul's life, Saul and his men were camping they, you know, in their pursuit of David, and so they bedded down for the night. And, and along comes David and his right-hand guy, uh, Abishai. And, and you'll see it in, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 8. And I can just picture this. I mean, these guys are sleeping. And, and David, again, he's so good. And Abishai's with him. And they see there's, there's, the, there's the army. There they are right down there. I can just, I can just picture that Abishai, he kind of snuggles up next to David, probably whispers in his ear. Probably says, David, this is the moment. This is the moment God has put your enemy in your grasp. Let me nail him to the ground with his spear. One hit, believe me, I won't need a second. I mean, you can just hear Abishai whispering to David. But David turns to Abishai and he says, don't you dare. Don't you dare hurt him. Who could lay a hand on God's anointed and even think of getting away with it. That's David's heart. I mean, he's so respectful of God's authority. And he's so respectful even of Saul's authority that he doesn't. So what they do, they, they sneak into the, uh, the camp. And they take, uh, rather, than, rather than take Saul's life, they, they take Saul's spear and, and his water jug. And they, they kind of position it and lay it like beside Saul's head. And then they sneak back out of camp. And then they, they get back into a vantage point. And, and then in chapter 26, verse 23, they, they yell down to the camp, The Lord delivered you into my hands today, Saul, but I will not lay a hand on his anointed. And here again, Saul, he realizes, man, David had a chance. And what David's communicated is, I refuse to play your game. I refuse to retaliate. And so David chose to leave it in God's hands. And whatever evening of the score needed to take place, he would let God do that. 
Again, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God because scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Only God wears the robe and only God sits on the judge's bench. Only God has the gavel and he doesn't give it to you and he doesn't give it to me. As much as you and I want to get revenge, we want to get even. As David, we need to turn it over to God and say, God, it's in your hands. It's in your hands. Maybe that's why David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. You ever wonder why? People often wonder. I mean, David, he didn't live a perfect life. In fact, as you know, and and as we'll see, he did some crazy stuff. But yet to be given the title of a man up to God's own heart, what a great quality, what a great description to be given to someone. Maybe, maybe this is part of it, I, I don't know. But when you go again to the New Testament in First Peter, in describing Jesus when he was on trial, when people opposed him, that's exactly what Jesus did. You, you'll see it in First Peter 2, 23. They, they called him, they called Jesus every name in the book, and he said nothing back, he just said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things straight. Sometimes the best thing you can do when people send you nasty emails or say something nasty about you on Facebook or lie about you or assassinate your character, sometimes the best thing you can do nothing just do nothing and let your life be a testimony it's hard to do because in our natural self come on agree how many of you agree with me naturally you want to get even right I mean I do I do I mean I I am so good at imagining what I could do If you knew some of the thoughts I've had about people who've opposed me, you would probably not be attending this church. (laughs) Honestly, I mean, in in our own natural self, everything in us, you know, wants to to get back. Here's the third thing. Uh, Taking the high road means choosing to forgive. It means choosing to, re- to forgive because re- refusing to retaliate, that's one thing. Choosing to forgive is something entirely different. They're, they're two so different from one another. Re- refusing to retaliate, what that does, it sets my offender free. Choosing to forgive sets me free. And so you and I have a choice to make. You, you and I can live in the bondage of bitterness and not forgive, or we can live in the freedom of forgiveness and forgive. Other people, but but it's it's the choice that you and I make because refusing to retaliate says I won't hurt you back. Choosing to forgive says I won't let you hurt me anymore. That's that's the beauty of forgiveness. Because failure to forgive can be fatal. I've seen it, and I'll bet you have too. Whenever somebody is hurt, and they don't forgive. It's fatal. It's poison. In fact, Job chapter 5, verse 2 sums it so very clearly. Resentment kills a fool. 
And so forgiveness is a gift that's been given to us. Now, forgiveness, it doesn't mean excusing the behavior. It, it doesn't mean embracing the relationship. Obviously, if you could, that's great, but it doesn't mean you will necessarily embrace the relationship again. An abused spouse can forgive that husband, but it doesn't mean they still have to live under the same roof, at least for now. You can forgive a, a, a guy who embezzles money, but it doesn't mean you have to say, and why don't you, you know, come serve at our church and we'll put you on the finance team, okay? It doesn't mean that you necessarily embrace the relationship. And so if forgiveness isn't any of those things, what is it? What is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness basically is choosing to see your offender with different eyes. And what do you mean by that? It means to see your giant or your offender or the one who's opposing you. It means to see your giant as God's child and, as, and revenge as God's job. It's his job to deal with that. Max Lucado tells of Moravian missionaries who went to spread the gospel to the Eskimos. And when they began to explain forgiveness, there was not a word in their language that described forgiveness. And so they had the hardest time trying to come up with a word that explained what forgiveness was. And so this is the word they came up with. 24 letters, I think it is. Isu maji jujung nine or mik is how that's pronounced. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, what, and what it means is not, not being able to think about anymore. That's what that means, not being able to think about anymore. And that's what forgiveness is, because forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting, because you can't forget offenses that people did to you. You can't. But you can reroute it through heaven to where you don't think about it anymore. If it comes into mind, you pass it on to God, see God, you deal with it. You deal with it. I mean, after all, because we've been forgiven, that's what Jesus asked us to do, is to forgive others. In Matthew 18, 32, when Jesus had finished talking about the servant who'd been forgiven a lot and then went out and didn't forgive, this is what Jesus had to say. You evil servant, I forgave you a tremendous amount because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? So, I mean, just to yourself, I mean, how much have you been forgiven? And probably a lot. Which means I'm responsible to forgive. Choosing the high road means choosing to forgive. And then number four, it, choosing the high road means finding refuge in God. It means finding refuge in God. Because ultimately, it's going to come down to, am I going to take matters into my own hands, or am I going to turn it over to God? Which am I going to do? And David chose to trust God in 1 Samuel 24, 15. So the Lord must be the judge, he said. He will decide between you and me. He will watch and he will take my side in this matter and set me free from you. I mean, the whole time David's eyes are on God. Do you remember when we looked at Goliath and we said that Goliath's, uh, that David's uh, thoughts were nine to two, being, you know, he, he thought about Goliath twice, he mentioned him twice, and he mentioned God nine times. His thoughts were nine to two over God, over David, um, Goliath. Same thing is true here. Same thing. Whether he's running at Goliath in, to, to go into battle or whether he's running from Saul for his life, he's focused more on God than he is the giant. And, and a key word for David is refuge. Refuge, a place of safety, a place of comfort, a place of shelter. 
And you see it all the way through the Psalms. No less than 40 times David uses this word. Psalm 7, verse 1. Oh, Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save me and deliver me from all who pursue me. Psalm 9, verse 9. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And maybe Psalm 57 expresses this word the best because in the introduction to Psalm 57, it begins by saying a song of David as he fled from Saul in the cave. In Psalm 57, one, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge. You're facing a giant of opposition today, many of you. God is your refuge, and God is your strength. And my prayer is that just as David made God his refuge, that you will too. I'm going to ask if you'd bow your head. And as we close out today, I know everybody in this room, everybody who's watching online, you, you find yourself somewhere in this story. I know you do. Some of you have tried to make peace with others, but to no avail. Others of you know the emptiness of retaliation. Some of you have discovered just how hard it is to forgive someone who hurts you. And some of you have discovered the joy of releasing it to God and finding refuge in the shadow of his wings. I pray today that that you would be one who would find refuge in the shadow of his wings. I pray that you would be one who would seek to make peace. I pray that you would be one who would choose to forgive and not to retaliate and turn it over to God. You can only do that in the strength of God's work in your life through the Holy Spirit and having Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. Today, if, if you're a person who's here and you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus, you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. And for those of you who have, maybe this is an opportunity to recommit to following Jesus and asking Jesus to be your refuge. And so I'm going to ask you, if you would, as we close, to repeat this prayer after me, if this is your desire. Father in heaven, Today, I acknowledge Jesus as my refuge. He is my shelter. He is my hope. He is my peace. Jesus, I invite you to be my Savior and Lord. Come into my heart. Come into my life. I pray this in your name. Amen.